0: Jon Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you, Jonas Esposito. ready for this on WCPT eight twenty?
1: Hello, hello, hello! Thank you for joining me this Friday, November eleventh. You gotta feel good. You gotta feel good about this weekend. Oh, yeah, it's going to be cold. Okay, fine. It's that time of year, but look. At where we are, the Senate and the House of Representatives, still too close to call. Oh, sure, everybody's saying, well, it looks like this is going to happen. But the bottom line is, mathematically, it is still too close to call. It's still too close to call for both houses. Won't we have a great week next week? If when this is finally settled, the Democrats walk away with both houses, it could happen. It could happen. And even if it doesn't, woo. We did a really good job. I want you to do something to reward yourself this weekend. You worked really hard. We accomplished a lot. Savor that. Savor this moment. We were supposed to get wiped off the face of the earth. And right now, today, as you and I speak, it is still mathematically possible that Democrats could keep both houses. Mm -hmm. You know, Georgia is definitely going to a runoff, but we still have two races. Nevada and Arizona that are too close to call. If we can get those two seats, going to take an awful lot of pressure off of Georgia. Congratulate yourself. Nice work. You did a good job. Savor it. Because after you savor it this weekend, after you rest up, reward yourself, we have we have other things that we have to focus on, regardless of whether or not we take those two seats that are still up for grabs in the Senate for Arizona and Nevada. We still want Raphael Warnock in the Senate, not Herschel Walker. So that's going to have to be the focus for the next few weeks. And here locally, we've got, um, as of this morning, 14, 14 people officially running. To be the next mayor of the city of Chicago? Yeah, we have a lot to talk about today. Let us open the phone lines, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. You know, there have been other races and and things on the ballots that we haven't had a chance to uh, point out. We have a Gen Zer who is going to Congress. Yeah. And in Florida, of all places, Maxwell Frost, 25 years old, is going to be the first Gen Z member of Congress. South Dakota voted to expand Medicaid. Remember when President Biden said, you know, I'm going to provide all this federal money so states can you know, expand Medicaid and they're going to get all these funds. And some Republican states still said, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think we want to have more poor people with insurance. Now, that would be a bad thing. Well, South Dakota changed its mind and Medicaid is going to be expanded. Isn't that great? And um, for those people who said women had gotten over it, no, women had not gotten over the Dobbs decision that um, removed a woman's right to privacy, a woman's right to make decisions about her body. That right was uh, given to the state. Yeah. And uh, the pundits were saying, oh, yeah, but that was back in June. Women are over it. Every state that had an abortion measure on the ballot, every single state, California, Vermont, Michigan, Montana, Kentucky, every single state where abortion was on the ballot, voters chose reproductive freedom. Every time, no exceptions, California, Vermont, Michigan, Montana, and Kentucky In every single state where abortion was on the ballot, voters chose reproductive freedom. Do you think the Republicans are paying attention? Do you think they care? I think they're so entrenched in this issue that there's no going back. There is absolutely, positively no going back for them. They created this. And now they have to live with it. Okay. Um, let's go to the phone lines right off. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Jim.
2: Hi, Joan. I wanted to use this word, cacophony of noise. You blew away on this planet. You were the only one that stuck to your guns and had this thing right on the mic, which my hat's off to you. Uh, what I want to say is the, re- the future Republican Party, they caught lightning in a bottle in, uh, when Trump won. They caught lightning in a bottle, but now the bottle has to be thrown overboard, or <laughs> physically thrown overboard, because, let's face it, the betting Lane is now on DeSantis, has moved to DeSantis. They know that he was a big drag on the party, but I'm hoping as a Democrat my whole life <laughs> that they keep him in the play long enough To really bring them down in the flings because the way I see it is. Uh, he's got enough followers to really follow up the election in, in, in the next two years with the help of a guy we lived that long anyway.
1: But oh, I, I completely agree. Um, I mean, everybody is like trying to write Donald Trump's epitaph. You know, supposedly his advisors are telling him, oh, don't, don't declare yourself a candidate next week like he was going to wait till after the Georgia runoff election. Um, we'll see what happens. But I think, I think it's going to get ugly between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. I think it's going to get real ugly. I think they're going to give each other mortal wounds, and it couldn't happen to two nicer guys.
2: I agree. The Republican strategists have to be really worrying the midnight oil at this point. So, you call <laughs> us right in the nose. You call us right in the nose, and you have a great weekend. And I'm going to buy a few rounds of drinks when I get out of this joint.
1: Thank
3: you very kindly. <laughs> take
2: care. Take that care. sounds like a bye plan.
1: Bye. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for that call. Um, you know what? Let's, we've got other callers lined up to talk. So let's take a real quick break right now and we'll get right to the phone lines right after this.
0: Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret, you can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer.
4: Whoa, you feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. The David Pac-Man Show. There are lots of people who never like Trump, and there's still a significant number of people in the Republican Party who publicly go along with Trump because they saw the way the tide was turning and they see the way the wind's blowing now. They believe that Trump has been damaging to the party, and so they'd rather someone else. And right now, that someone else seems to be Ron DeSantis. That's it. We don't go to deep state because there's no evidence of that.
5: The David Pac-Man Show, weekday evenings at 10 on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: It is Friday, and every Friday we start the show by talking about the news of the day and the news of the week and taking your calls. Let's go to the phone lines. Paul is calling in from Seattle. Hey, Paul, how are you today?
2: Happy Friday.
6: Um,
1: Happy Friday.
2: I think that President Biden
6: hit exactly the right tone when he said, you showed up and we kicked their asses. <laughs> yep. And I think I, I think that this, none, none of this, uh, and now it's time to unify the country. No, no, no. Because you see, the MAGAs aren't dead yet and they don't want to unify the country. So, The first thing the Democrats should be doing is is taunting Donald Trump and say, "Yeah, we kicked your asses. We kicked your you kicked your asses, and uh, you know why don't you? If you want to bring it, run again. Unless you're scared that you're going to get your ass kicked again too. (laughs) Come on, man. Because what this will do to the party is if Trump does run again, oh, big bag of fighting rats, as as (laughs) the say, yeah, they will." And if he doesn't run, and so if the big bag of fighting rats will either have to, if they accept him as the nominee, then the, the Republicans who are coming to their senses, they won't support it. If they have to throw him out, then the maggots will all leave because they are cultists. And, and then if Trump doesn't run, then he will look weak and the maggot cultists will all start crawl back into their holes and disappear. At the same time, we should also be saying that we should be defining. We first all about saying, yes, we won. We won because you didn't. And define the election as it was all about abortion and the Trump Supreme Court, the extremist mm-hmm. Trump Supreme Court. And we should be saying it was about extremist Trump candidates. Yes. And we should also be saying, third, it was about fair districting because. Other than in these swing states where Republicans still gerrymandered the crap out of everything, we would have mopped the floor. Because you can see, like in Michigan, when they had fair districts, Democrats ran the table. Ran the table. Yep. And, and slam dunk in Michigan on women's rights. Slam dunk everywhere where women's rights were on the ballot. And that's what we need to show them as you just got your butts kicked for your Donald Trump extremist policies. Yeah, Donnie, run again, baby, run
1: again. Come on. baby. <laughs> That's what we see Yeah. Yeah. And I think that Donald Trump, uh, by all accounts, thought he believed there was going to be the red tsunami. He believed that he could announce his candidacy next week and take credit for the red tsunami and that he would just sail through to 2024. Um, now. I think he's got a lot to think about because I still believe, Paul, that Donald Trump believes that he's got to announce his candidacy before Merrick Garland indicts him. That's I think yeah. that he really wants that bit of timing. I don't think I know he wants to uh, get into the race before DeSantis declares, but everybody seems to think that. Because he's just been newly elected as governor, DeSantis will wait till May when the Florida legislative session wraps up before he announces his bid for the presidency. So he's got a little bit of time there, but he wants to be a candidate before Merrick Garland moves. And I don't have any insight into Merrick Garland's inner circle, but all the people I talk to seem to think that Merrick Garland is going to move sooner rather than later. So, Donald Trump's well, in a bit of a, a quandary.
6: Yeah, and that, that he is essentially admitting that he somehow interfered in Florida. Maybe the Justice Department needs to investigate that just to, if nothing else, to debunk it. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> so Donald Trump just keeps admitting his crimes and his lies, and that's what we have to, you have to stick that. You have to say, no, it's just like, a, oh, I don't want to use that word, it sticks to you just like it's on your finger and you can't get it off. And it's like, you'll never, now it's on your clothes. Oh, you can't get it off. You're going have to take it off. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, you, that's what you have to do. Donald Trump has to be one of those things. Go, oh, oh, get this thing off of me until they all go away. And you know, see, the, the thing is, Joan, um, is that Donald Trump would never want to be the leader of a unified nation where 70% approval. No, because he and the maggots. The only—they're not interested in politics or policy. They're only interested in owning somebody, and that's what they're all about. He would never want to be anything more than the leader of, you know, just enough—actually, a minority that was just enough to own the rest of the majority, which is what he did. He got—he got installed when he didn't win. Just like Donald Trump has always said, he never wants to win a lawsuit that he rightfully deserves to win. He only wants to win lawsuits where he shouldn't win.
1: That's what mm-hmm. And speaking of lawsuits, I don't know if you saw that ruling today. Trump, there was a lawsuit that Trump had his lawyers file, had something to do with using the RICO statutes to go after Hillary Clinton. I mean, it was really absurd. Not only did the judge throw it out, but the judge felt that it was such a frivolous lawsuit that the judge is fining the lawyers, not Trump, for bringing the suit. The lawyers who came to court are paying fines up to $50,000 for being in exactly. court with this ridiculous lawsuit that was that was just so frivolous. The judge is punishing the lawyers, and that almost never happens in real life.
7: No,
6: unless they're trying to use the law and the court as a, and, As a, yeah. and I said judges don't take that, they don't take time for that. They, they, and and there was a lawsuit. Who's that? No. The one in Michigan, uh Christina, the one who ran for Secretary uh no uh yeah, Secretary of State. Crazy Christina, who's who's trying to file a lawsuit um in Detroit that said only Detroit voters should be able to vote by mail and the judge, the Wayne County judge, this is where I grew up, uh, threw it out and said it was, it was stunningly. What do you say? It was just stunningly. Uh, there was nothing. So little. So little evidence. As if, there was summary dismissal on lack of evidence. And he said, stunningly little evidence. Ugh. It was just like get out of here. What are you doing here? Y- yeah. And yep. Now they're, now they're finding him, and I think that that'll teach a lawyer fifty thousand. Yeah. Here, go take that. You, and
1: mm-hmm. by the way, maybe you can
6: get that from Don. Maybe he'll, yeah. maybe he'll reimburse <laughs> you, but I doubt it. I doubt it, too. You won't even get paid. You're not even going to get paid, number one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. And yet, and yet, even though the quality is dropping, there are still lawyers willing to do his bidding. I just, uh, you know, don't they see what happens? You know, uh, how people get charged and disbarred and now fined? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I guess they feel figure it's worth the five minutes of fame that they feel like they'll get. I'm not sure. Paul, thank you so Good much answer. for the call. You bet. Before we go on to other callers, um there's something um that I want to share with you, some sound. I don't um I think this was on MSNBC anyway. Uh Al Sharpton, the Reverend Al Sharpton was on cable news talking about this midterm election. And I thought what he had to say was very interesting and amusing. Listen to Al Sharpton.
8: I think Donald Trump has done for the Democrats what no one could have done for the Democrats. And he's, a, he's a gift that keeps on giving. And last night, last night was another gift. When you look at the fact that uh, we said that the Congress is up for grabs. It was supposed to be a yeah. grab fest for the Republicans. Right Now they barely may take the majority of the uh, con- of the House, barely, to where, where mm-hmm. they could really uh, end up with not getting anything through they want, and maybe tied for the Senate. That was not what was supposed to, uh, was supposed to happen. What made it happen was Donald Trump. Because he's going to pick out people that would do what he wants. Dr. Oz. I, when I was in Philly, I said the last Oz I heard was the Wizard of Oz, and he didn't <laughs> end up too well either. No, and he also, I mean, well. <laughs> what we are looking at is a man so maniacal in his ego that he has shipwrecked the party. And he may not like me saying it, but the big winner last night on national politics was Joe Biden, mm-hmm. who they said was going to bring the party down. They said he had low uh, uh, poll numbers. He was all in the negatives. Joe Biden didn't hide in the White House. He went and campaigned in Pennsylvania. He went uh, uh, to New York. He went all over the place. And they won where he went. So we're now the morning after. Looking at DeSantis kicked you behind uh, Donald in Florida, where you live. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden has revived from the political grave you thought he was in. Good morning, Donald. I hope you have a good day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Al Sharpton calling it like it is. Let's go back to the phone lines. Dan is calling in from Rosemont. Hi, Dan. Thanks for calling in today.
9: Hi, Joan. How you doing? Listen, a um, couple of things. You know, I'm amused watching these Republicans now. They're scratching their heads. They're finally realizing Donald Trump is not a team player. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, he's only yeah. out only out for himself. And um, it's really fascinating to me. But also, uh, yeah, i January 6th did not take Trump down. But I truly believe this has taken Trump down. You know, Paul Ryan, of all people, the former speaker, you know, he, even though I disagree with him on everything, he bailed on Trump a long time ago. But he said that, you know, he said that in an interview, I've tried to tell my colleagues this for years, that Donald Trump hurts our candidates. He doesn't help them. And you can see it. You know, you saw it with, the you know, when they lost to Congress in uh, 2018, you you saw it. the other night um uh, but anyway but you know he's not the asset that they all believed he was and i can't believe they're just now figuring that out
1: well you know they've been so afraid of him for so long and you know i have a little bit of problem with paul ryan because paul ryan when donald trump was a candidate was very uh, anti-donald trump and then remember When Donald Trump won the presidency, Paul Ryan went to visit him in the White House. And nobody knows exactly what was said because Trump, by all accounts, was ready to get rid of Ryan. And all of a sudden, whatever Paul Ryan said must have uh, put Trump in a good mood because then uh, they were best buds after that. Mm -hmm. And it's only been since Paul Ryan has been out of politics that he has somehow found his courage again to be anti-Donald Trump. And I also have a problem with Paul Ryan, because as you know, one of his post-political office jobs has been being on the board of Fox Cable, and people Mm -hmm. were hopeful that when Paul Ryan took a seat, that he might help mitigate some of the lies and misinformation and bombast that is the steady diet of a lot of the Fox Cable hosts, and... Paul Ryan, people I know privately that there have been even Republicans who pleaded with Paul Ryan to get Fox cable to be less divisive. And he either has no power to do that or hasn't chosen to do it yet. Mm. So I don't have the same kind of respect for Paul Ryan as I do for an Adam Kinzinger, somebody else who I don't agree with. But I think they mean what they say.
9: I'm not a fan of his, but I and also, you know, something that gave me a lot of hope right before Election Day is Michael Steele is someone I think we both could respect. Uh And uh, he he was being interviewed and he said that this election was going to offer a lot of big surprises. He said that the Republicans were sending out a lot of fake polls. They were sending out polls that were heavily planted to favor Republicans. Yes. He turned out to be completely right, Joan.
1: Well, and not only were they doing partisan polling, but toward the end of the campaign, it was pointed out in one of the articles I read that they were taking their partisan polling and combining it with polling results from five thirty-eight and then putting it out publicly, making it look like five thirty eight agreed with everything that they were saying, basically trying to use the credibility, if it still exists, of five thirty eight to um bolster and convince people that their partisan polling was correct. That's why yep. I, I just think polling is the day, you know, I mean, we love, everybody loves trying to see into the future, but polling has become so unreliable that I just think it's ridiculous going forward. Anyway, Dan, i got to get to a break. Thanks so much for the call. We are going to continue to take your calls, 773-763-9278. We're going to be back after a break
0: social media account to follow for progressive politics wcpt 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming give us a like on facebook and a follow on both twitter and instagram there's new information explosive new information it's how every day starts need for information Get the info you need from santita jackson weekday morning, starting at 6 on wcpt 820 Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820.
1: It is Friday, and on Friday, we take your calls. We talk about the news of the day, the news of the week. Let's go right back to the phone lines. Rose is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Rose, how are you? Hey, Joan. Well,
10: I'm optimistic that the Dems will keep the Senate and maybe the house. I just want to say that I am so grateful that Nancy Pelosi was the speaker of the house when January 6th happened, because I'm not sure that we would have had the same outcome, having the vote count proceed late into the night. If one of the other possibly younger or less quote unquote seasoned Dems had been in charge. On that day, so whatever happens, I'm just so grateful that she was there. I think she was in the right place at the right time, just like I think um, Volodymyr Zelensky was in the right place at the right time in February when
1: Russia invaded his country. So I just wanted to say that. So whatever happens, I'm just grateful to her that she was there on January 6th. Nancy Pelosi, I think, is going to go down in history as one of the most effective speakers of that the House of Representatives has ever had. This woman is so tough and so strategic. You know, it's you know the the joke. You know, you're playing checkers and the other person's playing chess. Well, Nancy Pelosi exactly. doesn't know how to play anything but chess. And I agree with you. And it's like three dimensional, three dimensional. Mm, yes, exactly. Exactly. And she is, she knows who she is and she knows how to get what she wants. And she has a spine of steel. She and Kevin McCarthy could not be two more polar opposite human beings in any way, shape or form. It is. It's just it's just extraordinary. Yeah, I think I think she's exceptional. And here's my my fear. I know she's won reelection, but by all accounts, she was pretty shaken by the attack on her husband. And somebody asked her if she was going to continue in Congress. And she said kind of like, well, you know, maybe I got to think about that. Um, She didn't give a firm yes. Though she is still certainly i mean she's in egypt she's she's certainly performing the speaker's duties to the fullest um, but if we well, do lose control of the others. yeah, if we lose control of the house, I don't know if she would stick around or if she would allow uh the democratic uh machine and and governor in California to name another Democrat to her chair i don't I don't know. Uh, what's what's going to be happening there. But I agree with you. I can't tell you how much I admire her. She is just amazing. And the fact that, you know, you forget she came to politics, at least elected office very late in life. She raised she was a mom. She raised five kids. And yes, she and her husband were big donors and they you know, they were always involved in democratic politics. But she didn't start running for office till much later in life than most people start that kind of thing. And, and that kind of seasoning really, I think, has stood her in good stead. I think she's awesome and almost irreplaceable. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Rose. Have a great weekend. You deserve it. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Earl is calling in from Hyde Park. Hey, Earl, how are you?
11: Hi, I'm doing fine, Joe, and I'm doing fine, and I'm enjoying the program so far, and I always like to hear you and your uh, guest callers uh, you know, discuss uh, various uh, topics of the day. I just haven't been calling in for a while, but I've been listening. I've been listening.
1: Well, well I appreciate I that.
11: To to, oh, okay. What I wanted to get to was... Um, I share optimism for what was accomplished, but I have deep concerns about the future if they take over the House and McCarthy or whoever uh, wins the uh, control of the Republican Party. It's going to try to do everything they can to slow down any kind of agenda that we saw with Obama coming from the Republicans when they were in control of the House. And uh, if you lose the Senate, I know we're going to have problems there, too. But it is very uh, strategic and good news. That we did as well as we did on this last election cycle, but I'm still concerned about anything that we'll be able to do going forward. I'm glad that we do have still have the ability to have the Justice Department going forward, but uh, I'm you know the Republican Party will be in, in control of the purse strings and uh, they can slow down a whole lot of things that the president wants to get to.
1: Without, without question. Without question, I, I don't think we are going to lose the Senate and I would love to see us keep the House. But if we do lose the House of Representatives, I think the one thing that we've got going for us, Earl, is the fact that Kevin McCarthy thought that he was going to have this huge majority and he was going to be speaker and he was just going to run roughshod over Democrats. It looks like now, even if the Republicans pull out a majority in the House of Representatives, it is going to be the slimmest, literally a couple of votes, majority that he has, which means that he is going to be spending so much time trying to make all the different factions of his party happy that I don't think he's going to have the same ability to cause trouble that uh, he was thinking that he was going to have. So I guess that's to me that's a silver lining. And you know, um even in the Senate um there was already talk when Republicans first thought there was going to be a blue or a red tsunami of uh, there was talk that Mitch McConnell might not even be elected uh to lead the Senate. He was going to have a challenger. And Kevin McCarthy, by all accounts, is desperately right now, desperately trying to call everybody and give everybody what they want to get their votes. He is not going to be a powerful speaker. a P- matter of fact, people are saying that Marjorie Taylor Greene is if, if Kevin McCarthy, even if he's given the title, Marjorie Taylor Greene will really be the one that's who's calling the shots. Because she has simply, you know, increased her power remarkably within that party. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting because even if they get this slight majority in the House, it is not going to be enough um enough votes to guarantee that they can be as trouble, troublesome as they want to be. Now, will there still be? a move on their, on somebody's part to try to impeach President Biden, impeach Kamala Harris and impeach Nancy Pelosi, all the people they want to impeach. Well, we'll just have to see how that plays out. But I think it's going to be a much um, I think Kevin McCarthy is going to have his hands full just trying to keep his Congress people moving in the same direction, um, as opposed to really being a thorn in Joe Biden's side the way he would like to be. Earl, thank you so much for the call. Thank you for responding. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's uh, get another caller in before we go to break. Dave is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hey, Dave.
11: Hey, John.
1: Two
12: things quick. Do you think Tim Ryan is kicking himself for not having President Biden stomping with him now?
1: Well, you know, it's funny because I've been listening to a lot of discussions about that. And um, I think that... People who chose not to have Biden campaign for them, I think they made a mistake. I I do. But, you know, the 2020 hindsight at the time, everybody's got to do what 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 they think is best for their campaign. And, you know, Ohio is a wacky state. God love them. It was where I was born. It was where I grew up. But politically, it has become a real Jekyll and Hyde kind of state. And, you know, maybe there are other places where I would have said, oh, you made a serious mistake not having Biden there. But, you know, Tim Ryan had to do what he thought was best and to lose to somebody like J.D. Vance.
12: If you recall, Al Gore did the same thing by not using Clinton. Same result. Mm -hmm.
1: So. I think, frankly, it's always a mistake. You know, you look at the ratings, and it's like, oh, well, the president's not very popular. I, I, I won't have them campaign with me. But you know what? I, because I, people did that when Obama was president. People did it when Clinton was president. And I think it's, if you look at the aftermath, I think it is always a mistake. No matter how unpopular you might think a given president is at any time, I think it's always a mistake to not ask for that kind of help, to not seek that out.
12: Yeah. Hey, on, uh, on the second one, do you think, like, right now when the the wound is fresh and that, and President Biden's, I was talking about wanting to get reunification between both groups and sitting there acting like an 8-year-old going, nah, 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 we, you know, we need <laughs> you now and all of this stuff. Do you think that's really helpful? I mean, he, even if uh, we do get the Senate, it's only going to maybe be by one again. And it more than likely looks like the House ain't going to be there. And uh,
1: Well, I, mean, I uh, think when you're President Biden and you've been hearing for months how you're doing a bad job, your party's going to get kicked to the curb. Um, You're going to get rolled over. You know, you're you you know, you're going to be refuted in all these elections. And then all of a sudden that doesn't happen. I think it's perfectly okay to say, you know what? You were all wrong. Are any of you ready to write about it? You were any are any of you ready to admit it? Um, Because, you know, a lot of the people who were making these predictions are, um, are suddenly, they're not saying, oh, gosh, I guess we were wrong. They're saying, oh, well, you know, this happened or that happened, you know. And I think it would be nice just to write, have somebody write an editorial and say, you know what? We blew it. The mainstream media blew it. The pollsters blew it. Everybody blew it.
12: I guess so, I guess that goes against Michelle Obama. When they go low, we go higher up. Anyways. Yeah,
1: I know. And me, I know she says let me, that. And I'm gonna get
12: off. I'll listen on the side. Okay. Michelle. Be well. Yeah. Have a good weekend.
1: You too, Dave. Dave. I know, and I know, Michelle, you know, when they go low, we go high. And I know that in theory, that is the way it should be. But sometimes I think that you have to fight back. You can't just keep turning the other cheek because especially in politics, If sometimes you don't get mad, if sometimes you don't fight back, I think people think you're weak or even worse, that whatever you're being accused of, you might actually be guilty of. There are times when I think you need to fight. It, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, you have to be awful about it, but I think there are times when you have to fight fire with fire because I think people will not Certain people will not respect you if you do not. That's my humble opinion. We are going to take a break. We're going to come back with more news and more calls. 773-763-9278 right after this.
5: Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820.
0: This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, we are taking your calls as we do every Friday, talking about the news of the day and the news of the week. So let's get right back to it. Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Go ahead, Steve. Hello? Hello. Oh, there you are, Steve. Yeah, Uh, uh, I've got you. Go ahead.
10: uh, Yes, just to make a few points. And and in all fairness to uh, Michelle Obama, yes, she made that uh, statement long before uh, Trump presidency in January 6th and so forth. So you know, we're living in a different world, and, and, and you know, I, I agree with you. There comes a time when you just have to really meet them where they are. You know, I, I, as you've discussed before on your show and other people have discussed, you know, I think the country it made a mistake with regard to how we uh, moved forward post-Watergate, and it sent a bad, me- a bad message. And in, in the post-January 6th era, we said, no, we're going to aggressively prosecute people we're still going after President Trump, you know, even though he's been out of office for two years. If there's something that we can connect him to with regard to January 6th, then finally we need to do that. Because it's for the health of the country and to send a message that nobody is above uh, the democratic process, nobody gets to subvert the democratic process, and, and, and nobody gets to, to do it violently, especially. Yes, we, we, can, we can battle verbally all we want, but what happened January 6th is above and beyond that. Yes, I mean, that's point one. Two, I think that we do need to recognize some some of the, some of this. to look at it from a national perspective as to why you know Democrats did well versus Republicans, some of it, quite frankly, um, has to do with local issues. Why it is that certain state houses flipped? I mean, take for instance New York. I mean, you know, the red red states love to, to give us a hard time about New York, California, Illinois. Mm-hmm. If, if if New York's congressional races were the measure of, of this election, this midterm. It would have been a red wave. They actually had a red wave in New York in terms of congressional seats. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that much of this, again, comes down to the notion that all uh, politics are local. And, you know, what the, the people of New York, especially in places like Long Island, felt is different than what people in Pennsylvania or Illinois or California felt. Yeah, so, you're uh, absolutely right. So, 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 yeah, so I, I mean, uh, but, uh, but that doesn't mean I take anything away from this. And uh, I think, uh, again, uh, as you point out, a lot of people wrong, you know, people get paid to, to do this for a living, to, to give out, to give off their, give out their opinions in terms of what's going to happen at a given election. And then they want you to completely forget about it. Now, if they had been right on uh, this coming Sunday, they'd be, they'd be there uh, touting just how right they were. You know, I've been saying this for months. Look how right now. But you'll find those who, were, who made certain predictions will just, well, now I, let's talk about 2024. And they won't want to discuss any of their bad predictions from 2022. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, it, it says something about you know this profession. Anybody who's got a who claims that they know what's going to happen or have a crystal ball, well then you're living in a different country because I, nobody I know of who's been able to get it right. Now, in, in many ways, in 2020, it, it was far closer than it should have been. In 2016, it was just uh, it was ridiculous that Donald Trump got elected at all. He didn't think he was going to get elected. No, um, so, not at yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they didn't even have anything to throw a party with. <laughs> <that> <laughs> hotel. yeah, that's how, that's how uh, yeah, they knew that they were going to lose. So, yeah, anybody who, you know, again, this, this is part of an industry. There's a professional political class that gets paid to give you their opinion. And folks, they don't know any more than you do in many cases. So, you know, really, it's just, it's just they do.
1: Absolutely, thank you, Steve. Thank you for okay. the call and joining the conversation. Uh, let's go to our good friend Roosevelt. Hello, Roosevelt.
3: Joan, thank you for taking my call. First of all, have a nice weekend. You too. Okay, I have two kind of questions for you since you're okay. the expert. All right. So let's say they take the house. What does that mean for the democratic party that still controls all three branches of government? Do you think they're going to pass anything concrete, anything worthwhile in the next two months? Cause if it was the other way around, I believe the Republicans would just jam through anything that benefited them. If they're running out of time. In other words, running, the clock is running out on the Democrats of controlling all three, the house, the Senate and the presidency. So do you think they're going to do anything as far as any laws, anything that they got still in the books or still in, in mind? Uh, as far as Pelosi, as far as Chuck Schumer and the president, that's first question. Second question is this. Okay. So what do you think happened in Georgia? Do you think those, uh, elections were legit, m- meaning that the governor of Georgia did he do any hanky panky on his opponent, which is uh, I can't think of the young lady, the African American lady, uh, sorry, Stacey but, Abrams. But, but, yeah, Stacey Abrams. Because it seems to me like I expect her to win because I would I would imagine that she would gain more uh, votes since she's been ad- she was at it last time and she knew what was, what was to be expected. In other words, that they play by the books, that the AG is, and if the AG, it's like a two-part question within the question here. It, so that in this runoff, do you think that uh, Warnock is going to win? I believe he's going to win. <clears throat> and, and, and so, so do you think that they, they went by the, you know, by the law that they, because <clears throat> last time, remember Trump asked them for votes and all that.
1: <clears throat> well, you know, it's interesting well, because... Yes, yesterday I was listening, I think it was yesterday. I was listening to Tom Hartman and somebody called in and asked him why he thought that Stacey Abrams lost. And he said, you know, he said, I'm, I'm really not sure. He said, I do know that as the incumbent, Brian Kemp was able to solidify his power. I also know that, you any, know, anybody who's familiar with Greg Palast, knows that there's been um Republicans have been utilizing a new law to try to get uh, Democratic voters unregistered, and Republicans have mostly been going after people of color. So, you know, what the conclusion Tom Hartman came to is that basically in Georgia, despite the fact that at least, you know, in Atlanta, you have a huge African-American population, the power structure in Georgia is still a very much a white power structure, and they uh, they go after African-American voters in every way they can by throwing them off the rolls, making it more difficult for them to vote, challenging their signatures and their registrations. And his attitude was that's exactly what happened. Now, here's what I think is interesting. He uh, It's been pointed out that Brian Kemp in Georgia got three percent more Republican votes Then Herschel Walker did. And people are looking at that and saying that that means that there were Republicans who just couldn't bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker. So what does that mean when we get to a runoff? Will they decide that they have to hold their nose, especially if it means control of the Senate? Will they stay home because they don't want to vote for a Democrat, but they hate Herschel Walker? That's going to be that 3% and what they decide to do is going to be really interesting when it comes to the runoff.
3: Yeah, but also, uh, in my opinion, as far as what you just said, wouldn't they be shooting themselves in the foot by getting somebody that's less qualified than the last time? uh, Reverend? Remember last time I was... uh, uh,
1: When he uh, went up against Kelly Loeffler?
3: Yeah, yeah. At least she had some... You know, sense of how how to run or, or how to, you know, stand up for that. She state. could put a sentence
1: together. It. She didn't talk yeah. about China's bad air.
3: Yeah. So, yeah. so that's my point. They would be shooting them. Even if they say they wouldn't Let's say Herschel Walker's in there. Can you imagine? You you mentioned that before. Can you imagine having a meeting, a Mitch McConnell, Herschel Walker? You know, is mm-hmm. your my point they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. Another thing I wanted to say in closing is this: two years go by real fast, and it went by real fast for us as Democrats of controlling everything in government. <clears throat> so, if they do anything that they said that they were going to do, such as the ridiculous revenge on, on 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 Biden as far as impeaching them or anything like that, they're going to lose more seats in the in the next in two years.
1: Oh yeah, so- I think they've got to be real careful. If they continue well, to be the party of crazy, they're only okay. going to hurt themselves. They're not going to accomplish anything except maybe making a lot of noise, banging on a lot of pots and pans. But they're not going to get anything done. And people are going to continue to write them off, at least in some quarters, as the party that's too extreme and too crazy. Uh, Roosevelt, I got a, I'm going to try to get Thank some you. more callers in. Thanks for Thank the you. call. I really appreciate it. Let's go back to the phone lines. Ken is calling in from Lombard. Go ahead, Ken. You're on the air.
13: Yes. Hi, Joan. Uh, this is not a, 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 maybe a little tangential, but just a, a bigger picture on elections. You know, as bad as the uh, Supreme Court justices that Trump uh, not, uh, got in there, uh, the two worst decisions for elections were Citizens United in 2010 and Shelby in 2013. And I just wonder if there's any. Attempt, if you know of, or one of your listeners knows of any attempt uh, to get that back to the Supreme Court, since we now know that Supreme Court decisions can be reversed.
1: Well, I think that eventually somebody will bring a case like that again, but with the current makeup of the Supreme Court and with um, how they have so many far right members. If even if the Supreme Court agreed to take a case like that, which I don't think they would, I'm pretty sure they would just simply affirm what went before, because um, they are making many of the Supreme Court justices. We have now seem to be making decisions based on partisan politics, not on um, not on the Constitution, not on uh, the law. I mean, if they were following the law, they would have left Roe v. Wade along, alone. It was settled law. It was precedent. Precedent is supposed to be sacred. It's been on the books for 50 years. So I think that someday someone will challenge that, and hopefully in the future we will see its demise, but not not in the short term. Think I don't think so, Ken.
13: Well, uh, Dodds ended up in... Uh court at the Supreme court, because I think Mississippi passed a law and, uh, the, the uh, Jackson clinic challenged that law because it was, um, it went against Roe V Wade. So maybe someone in some state, I mean, what, maybe some state could change a law that would overturn, uh, the, uh, election finance or if the, or the, uh, oversight and maybe that way it could get to the Supreme Court.
1: Well, my fear is that it doesn't matter with the current court whether it gets there or not. I don't think that they would change it. I don't think they would strike it down. I don't think the way this court is ruling, we can count on them for anything uh, like that. Ken, we got to go. we got a break for okay. news. Thanks so much for the call. Thanks, everybody who called in. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, this week there was a new entrant into the race to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. And over the next few weeks, we are going to spend time talking with everybody who is in that race. Rod Sawyer is uh, Alderman, the sixth ward. We are going to talk to him about what uh, the entrance of Chewy Garcia into the race means to him and other issues when we come right back after this. The
0: Devil's Advocates with Dominic Root. don't know if you've caught the spectacle, but it's getting quite interesting around here. Weeknights from 6 to 8 p.m. Worldwide, uh, Chicago, Progressive Voices on WCPT 820. That is a sweet deal, Jack. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The
7: reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT
0: 820.
1: For the next few weeks, our focus is probably going to be on that runoff election in Georgia between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. But that's only going to be for the next few weeks. After that, we are going to be focusing on the race to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. There is going to be a vote February 28th. The cast of characters who would like to be the next mayor seems to be growing daily. Uh, it, is in, it is entirely possible that we will find ourselves in the same situation we were in last time, where the two top vote getters end up in a runoff last time around. It was Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle. Uh, This time around, we have at last count, I think, 14 officially declared candidates to be the next mayor. One of those has has been in the race for a while now. Alderman Roderick Sawyer represents uh, the city's sixth ward. If that name sounds familiar to you and you're my age, he is the son of former Chicago Mayor Eugene Sawyer. Um, And he joins us now to talk about his candidacy and this race. Rod, thanks for joining us today.
7: Thank you for having me, Joan. Good to be here.
1: So what what went through your mind yesterday when uh, Chewy Garcia threw his hat in the ring as well?
7: Well, uh just that someone else that was in the race that we have to run uh, you know, and, and have our platform raised up against theirs. I think based on my consistent twelve years experience in city council, uh working on legislation, passing it, I've been co chair of the Progressive Caucus, Chair of the Black Caucus, uh passed significant pieces of legislation and I think I deserve an opportunity to, to tell the public what I think I can do as when I have my message of resetting Chicago and uh, when I saw it, it was just something else that, you know, another obstacle they has to deal with. But it's OK. We, we're going to deal with it. And I think when we come to meeting with the public, I think that I can resonate with the majority of people. And I'm hoping that they will consider me positively when it comes time to vote on February 28th.
1: You said that there were some pieces of legislation you were particularly proud of. A share of one or two of those with us.
7: Well, uh, most recently, uh, I authored the civilian oversight, which uh, the ECPS commission, uh, where we have civilian oversight for the police and uh, the civilians make a significant effort towards choosing uh, police chiefs and police superintendents and other high-level representatives in the law enforcement area. I worked on that with uh, my colleagues for over six years, uh, but I was the lead sponsor. I was proud to have that passed. Uh, Go back a few years, for example, I I did chair, uh, uh, author... The anti-privatization ordinance, which uh, stopped any future parking meter type deals to come to the city of Chicago. And we know how that ended out for us. We lost a lot on that. And yeah. uh, I was out of frustration uh, off of that. And that took several years to get through. But we got it through. And uh, hopefully we don't have to worry about that type of situation once again, any, again, any time again.
1: Tell me what you think about this current crop of candidates. Um, do you feel... That it's a it's a good crop or that there's some there's some um, people there that you're really going to have to make sure you get out and debate um, or are you just focusing on Lori?
7: No, I'm I'm focused on the citizens of Chicago and, and having to make sure that they get quality representation for the money that they pay in taxes and fees. I want to make sure that what we're doing is going to represent and serve the entirety of the city of Chicago. I don't concern myself about the other candidates. I respect them for having the guts to get into the race. But at the same time, I have to run my race. I have to put blinders on and go forward. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm doing this for the citizens of Chicago. I want to make sure that what we're doing in resetting is going to benefit the entirety of Chicago.
1: When you declared your candidacy, uh, the mayor said, Another day, another man who thinks he can do this job better than me. What was your reaction to that?
7: Well, I wasn't going to get into a back and forth on on petty um, conversations and and, and name calling or whatever that was. Uh, We have serious issues in Chicago, and I think that we have to focus on that. And I think people want us to focus on that. They don't want to see us, you know, uh, get into a, a, a slap fight amongst each other about, what we're supposed to do or what you know who's getting the race who's not getting a race I, I don't think that's fruitful and it's not productive um so i didn't even bother to respond to that it's, it would be a waste of time
1: tom tunney made the announcement this morning that he is not going to be running to be the next mayor something that he was very publicly considering up until recently any thoughts on that
7: I have a great deal of respect for Tom Tunney. He's a, a great gentleman. I've had the pleasure of knowing him for about 20 years or so. I've known him well before I became alderman. And, and I think that he was a great represent. Well, he is a great representative of, of the constituents of the 44th ward in the city of Chicago. Um, he is somebody that I, I respect and, and will look forward to talking to as always. And, um, you know, I wish him nothing but the best and, and, He's had a great career in city politics, and I, and I, and I respect the, the heck out of him.
1: I was talking a week or so ago uh, to Sophia King, um, the alderwoman who is also running to be the next mayor, and I was talking to her because she released a very f- detailed plan for what she wants to do to fight crime and how she plans to improve the police department. Um, what did you think of the plan that she put out there?
7: Well, I, I had an opportunity to look at her plan. Uh, some of the things that are currently at, uh, in pilot programs in place, for example, the 10-hour uh, work schedule is in the 5th District on the south far south side. They've been doing that pilot for some months now, and it, it seems to have some success. They're still assessing the uh, the effectiveness of it, so that's something. I understand that she's. Uh, a lot of people were talking about using retired detectives for certain functions, uh, so to assist in reducing the crime rate. Those are, are all interesting ideas. I, you know, whenever people put out things, I don't try to criticize them. Uh, they are what they are. They're ideas that we ought to be looking at. But also remember that none of us have ever served as policemen. Uh, we are not you know, train our really core function as managing the city, being the mayor is that we need to make sure that we pick the best qualified candidate that has the respect of the rank and file that can do the job. So we talk about doing things like that. we talk about geographical, you know, making sure that officers have, have, you know, being in places where they need to be consistently where people get to know their officers, uh, the geographic integrity of those officers need to be well-placed and you need to understand that, When you have officers that are there regularly, the community, the residents that are there, have a better connection with them because they're used to seeing them on a regular basis. So Uh we talk about all those things in addition to the things that Alderman King brought up and other candidates brought up. Again, it's not who has the best idea. How we implement those is what's important.
1: Would you retain Superintendent David Brown?
7: I I believe that superintendent Brown is a honorable person. I think he's very respectful, seems like a really nice guy, but in in a new administration, I would go in a different direction. Uh, I would use the committee that we had set up with the ECPS uh, committee, to uh, vet candidates that would be there and pick the highest qualified candidate that I would believe that has that respect of the ranking file, that has that experience moving through the ranks uh, in the city of Chicago and ascends to that top position, quite just like myself. You know, I think that I'm that kind of person that, you know, went through the ranks, done that, and deserves a shot at the top job. I am looking to have that similar uh, intention on trying to find the best qualified police superintendent for the city of Chicago.
1: Well, obviously, that's you want the best qualified candidate. But your statement that you want somebody that the rank and file can really respect would seem to yeah. indicate that maybe you would give a little extra weight to a candidate who is already a member of the police force. If, would, would that be you would?
7: Yes, that's correct. Absolutely. I would.
1: Um We have been criticized in the city of Chicago as one more question on policing and then we'll move on. Um, that that the policing strategy, as has been created by uh, David Brown, is not a data driven strategy. You know these these days with all the data collected. You know what kinds of crimes are committed, where they're committed. Um, I was talking to uh, Kristen Zeman, the former police chief of Aurora, and she said, you know what cops look at it, they look at hot zones and hot people. Uh, where the crimes are likely to be committed, who's likely to commit them. And she said when you have that kind of data, you know how to deploy your resources and you know what kind of training your people need. How could you make the Chicago Police Department a more data-driven organization?
7: Again, I want to make sure that when we talk to our superintendent that we use common sense approaches like the one you just mentioned, you know, when it's data driven and and we have, uh, all volumes of data that we have produced by various partners and in the police department itself that can help us do these things. Again, we have to have the police department superintendent, the person at the top to have the guts and the intuition to make sure that we implement those things and not have someone like me as mayor, uh, Override and be dictating what goes on with the superintendent of police. We need to rely upon him to do their, him or her to do their job, and to me to manage and work with that person to make sure that we're following the data, we're getting to those spots that you were talking about. We're making sure this is something that someone like me, a, a native Chicagoan, knows hot spots. This is what we deal with as ultimate. We have to report mm-hmm. hot spots to our commanders on a regular basis because they know that we know our areas better than anybody else. So. I deal with this on a, on a day-to-day basis. This is what my job entails amongst many, many other things. So uh, to no disrespect to the current mayor, but, you know, she has not done this before. You know, I've been doing this consistently for 12 years. You know, these are things that we work with and we try to tell people what's different about it, but you have to be there to really understand how it's done. And I think that I, you know, am different in that regard as a candidate for mayor that has that type of on the ground, on experience working mm-hmm. with our police partners to get those things done
1: i'm speaking with alderman roderick sawyer from the city's uh six ward he is running to be the next mayor of the city of chicago we're going to take a real quick break and talk to him a little bit more right after this
0: stay on top of the latest news in and around chicago with joan esposito live local and progressive every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m on wcpt 820
5: WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk where facts matter.
0: This is Joan Esposito live, local and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I'm joined by Alderman Roderick Sawyer, who is uh, representing the sixth ward in the city of Chicago. He uh, worked as an alderman with Rahm Emanuel on a lot of different things. Uh, Lori Lightfoot actually put him in charge of the Committee on Health and Human Services. And um, like many other alders uh, describing their relationship with the mayor, uh, it has not always been, how do we say this, Rod? It's not always been an easy an easy walk <laughs> um mayor lightfoot how, by her own admission
7: stressful we'll yeah stressful.
1: she how has a that? temper she uh, she gets really angry she has a very sharp tongue and um some of the people who were more than willing to really get on board and work with her in the beginning have have kind of walked away where do you stand at this moment in time with her
0: in
7: this moment in time, uh, we don't have much of uh interaction uh, and this is uh, since you, you, you declared well, Joan. uh since I declared that's correct mm-hmm. but what i what I will say, Joan, is that when she first came on, we were all ready and willing to able to work with her. We were actually excited about having a, an African American female mayor at the helm. Uh, we wanted to work with her we we made offers on numerous occasions. And like you said, we we brought up things that we heard her campaign on and we wanted to have implemented, uh, again, that aforementioned ordinance, I was speaking of was one of the things that she said she was going to have done in the first hundred days. She was going to help us get that done right away. It took us three and a half years to get it done. And again, in addition to the two and a half years, I worked on it under the prior administration. That's six years. I worked on one ordinance to try to get moved and we thought it was so important. We kept on it, but it was frustrating. Uh, you know, it was it was frustrating. I, I think that we had everybody wanting to work with it. Some people were still fearful that the mayor might have some retribution. And that's really the, the, the really big problem. We don't need a mayor that's continually be threatening continue to be the downplay accomplishments of others. Uh, we want the collaboration. We want the engagement. You know, I will say this. I, I worked with Rahm Emanuel. I worked with uh, Mayor Lightford. You know, Ron was equally tough. He was equally bombastic. He had, you know, had <laughs> he was,
1: uh, yeah, he had a little yeah. bit of a temper yes, too. But,
7: yeah, but but he but you were you know he was still focused on getting the job done. You know, and I was hoping that that Mayor Leifer would be the same way and focusing. No matter what your temperament or your, your your personality is, let's focus on getting the job done. We don't need any drama right now. We want to be able to work with everyone, and I think that makes the difference between she and I. You know, I have the proven track record of working with everyone. I do this every day. I, I collaborate. I engage people. I assist. You know, even when it's against my interest, as some people tell me from time to time, I will help anybody that comes up to me seeking help. So I think that's where that's a stark difference between she and I. And quite honestly, between the type of administrations that we would have, you know, I would be the person that would be engaging with everyone to get everyone's opinion. I know I don't have all the answers. I cannot do this by myself, but I think that I am an effective manager. I will make sure that people get engaged and have the best answers based on the best people that are available in that administration. And that's what the difference is between she and I.
1: (laughs) You know, talking about things that uh, seem to be taking a lot longer than by all means they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, my audience has from time to time made fun of me because I spend so much time talking about the lead pipe replacement in the city of Chicago. You know, um Lori Lightfoot knew there was a problem. You know, she made a promise last year that, you know, hundreds of these houses were going to get fixed even though there were thousands and thousands that needed it and a tiny percentage. And every time you, you talk to the mayor or the water department, it's, well, we can't find somebody who knows how to do the work. We can't get a contractor. We can't do this. We, we have this stumbling block, that stumbling block. And yet city after city, Newark, New Jersey, Detroit in Michigan, um, towns out in Colorado who've also had this problem have gotten it fixed and gotten their lead pipes replaced in a very timely manner. What is going on with that in the city of Chicago? Is it a problem with the water department? Is it a problem with the mayor's office? Where is this falling apart?
7: Joan, the problem with it falling apart is not coordinating with your agencies that are responsible for this. You can't just go out and make a a blind promise without Talking to your people, finding out what the real issues are, making sure that we do the proper coordination and seek the proper funding. This is going to be a massive investment. We're talking about multiples of billions of dollars to do the lead place replace, you know, the lead pipe replacement. Say that three times fast. Lead pipe (laughs) replacement program. Uh, You know, we make sure that. And but the important thing about what you just said, don't go off the cuff and make a promise that you know you cannot keep. Make sure that you you know. Have a very thoughtful answer. Make sure you take your time and talk to the various agencies that would be involved. Talk with the water department. Talk to additional funding agencies. Are we going to have to float bonds for this? Where we get federal assistance? Will we get state assistance? You know, are there other uh, EPA other things that we can get that would benefit us to do a multi-billion-dollar lead pipe replacement program? It was, and I think it was just off the cuff and say we're going to get it done in a year. Get it done in two years. That's irresponsible and it's reckless. You know, don't do that if you don't have a true answer, because people want answers, but give them a true answer. And I'm the one that's going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Uh-huh. I'm going to tell you the facts. I'm not just going to tell you something just because it sounds nice and it's flowery and it's beautiful and, and, it, and then I can't back it up. We have to make sure that we give the citizens of Chicago what they deserve. And some of that includes honesty and integrity and real answers to real problems.
1: What is one thing that as mayor you either really want to accomplish or one thing that you are looking to and say, I will do it differently than the mayor we have now? What sets you apart?
7: One thing that I said that I definitely will promise the citizens of Chicago, I will introduce a term limit for the mayor first day in office. I will instruct my state legislators to introduce that so that we can get that done first and foremost.
1: And what? And how many terms should somebody they, be allowed in the mayor's office? I
7: have not. I've, I've talked to people about varying terms, somewhere between two or three, but I think that public service should not be a, a career, you know, it should not be a 20, 30, 40-year career in public service. I think public service is an important thing that people should do for a while and move on and allow other people to do that as well. And you I know,
1: uh, Lori Lightfoot thing. made that same promise that she supported yeah, I, term limits, and then when she was asked about it after she was elected, it, she was kind of like, "Yeah, yeah, that's not really that important. Let's move on."
7: No, no, I'm telling you. For and if you listen to me, I run the tape back on on May of 2023. <laughs> I will have state representatives and state senators ready to file a bill, whatever's appropriate, where we can start instituting. Uh, Term limits for executive offices here in the city of Chicago, which is the mayor, the mayor's office, city of Chicago.
1: Excellent. That's I think not a, that's that...
7: not a promise that will be done. Day one, I will introduce that and I would encourage the the responsible people to pass it. What
1: is the what is the reason? that you decided to run for mayor it costs a lot of money it takes an incredible amount of energy you have to work to get endorsements you have to work 24 7 to get your name out there what was what motivated you what when did you wake up one day and said i gotta do this
7: you know that's a very good question and and Partially out of maybe a little frustration with dealing with the current administration, but also just my commitment to serve. I, I want to help my city where I was born and raised. I want to help my city where I've, I went to grammar school, high school, college, and law school, uh, where I've worked, where I've opened up businesses, uh, the, the city that I love, uh, the city that has challenges. But at the same time, I think that this is a phenomenal place. I don't think there's much other better place to be in than Chicago and then my history of service. I, uh, I've been serving since I was a child, uh, serving my neighborhood, serving the city, uh, with no compensation. This is what I do. And you know, this is what my family does. My father has done it. My sister's done it. I've done it. Uh, these are things that we feel that are important to try to provide some assistance and some help with the uh, assistance of others, obviously, but, Uh, Just that ingrained need to want to serve uh, my my I call them my family, my people in the city of Chicago, uh, just a desire to want to do better.
1: Well, it is a pleasure to talk with you. I wish you the best on your campaign. Take care of yourself and uh, let's plan on doing this again in a month or two and see where things stand for you.
7: Thank you very much, Joan. It was a pleasure.
1: That's uh, Alderman. Roderick Sawyer, he represents Chicago's 6th Ward, and he is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Remember, February 28th will be, at the very least, our first. the first vote on this. May not be the last vote. We're going to take a break. We're going to be uh, back looking at the midterms right after this.
5: Tune into the Tom Harmon Radio Program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: We had a midterm election this week, and uh, that was on Tuesday. Today is Friday, and so many races are still so close that we don't even know at this moment in time who has control of the House and or the Senate In addition to the big national races, there were a lot of down-ballot races in a lot of different states. One good piece of news, as I mentioned at the beginning of this broadcast, wherever abortion was on the ballot, voters chose reproductive rights. California, Vermont, Michigan, Montana, Kentucky. We saw it happen earlier in a vote on a referendum on a Kansas ballot. People are communicating their stance on this issue quite clearly. A lot of down ballot races in a lot of different states. A lot of election deniers on ballots in various states. So we've asked uh, Carolyn Fiddlers with the Courier News Group to come and talk about what she saw this midterm in various state legislatures around the country. Carolyn, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Whoa, let's see. where We have an embarrassment of riches here. Where shall we begin, Carolyn? I'll let you pick.
14: <laughs> oh, that that is so true. Um, we might as well start with some of the best news of the night in Michigan. I feel like people have talked about oh, it ad nauseum, oh. but it is impossible to overstate the importance of flipping those legislative cham- chambers. And not just Prop 3, which was the ballot proposition that protects uh, abortion rights in Michigan uh, enshrines that in their state constitution, so uh, a future Republican legislature can't mess with it. Um, But also Prop 2 protects voting rights uh, and enshrines those protections in the state constitution as well. So it will be much harder for Republicans in the future. And I'm sure this won't be. I'm sure at some point Republicans will absolutely get elected in Michigan again. um, It's a swing state for for a good reason. Um, But they won't be able to mess with uh, voting rights and they won't be able to make it harder to vote. Now, So that's exciting.
1: So uh, so much I want to talk to about Michigan. But in in this uh, voting rights referendum, because we can't seem to get any kind of voting rights protected on the federal level, and because the Supreme Court seems all too willing to just keep scooping guts out of the Voting Rights Act Is this what it's going to take? Is it going to have to be state by state, do you think, for people to protect their right to vote?
14: Um, It it is beginning to look that way. I would love to see federal level voting protections. um, But you make every excellent point there in terms of we shouldn't hold our breath while we're waiting for Mm -hmm. that to happen. And if it does happen, will it survive this ultra conservative Supreme Court it's really hard to know. But in states um, with their own constitutions, uh, Democrats can can do this uh, state by state where they have power. Um, and after Tuesday, they have power in more places than they used to. So
1: I have a friend who's very involved in politics and is very incensed that Governor Gretchen Whitmer and this um, getting a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, that that hasn't been a bigger story. We were having a conversation and she was like, you know, people, you know, yeah, Ron DeSantis won. Okay. You know, he was expected to win. and But everybody's like, ooh, Ron DeSantis. Ooh, he's so popular. Oh, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> yeah. He's, you know, the next. And then it's like, she was like, Did did anybody pay attention to Michigan and what happened there and what Democrats accomplished there and what Gretchen Whitmer accomplished there? She was furious that that wasn't the big story that everybody was talking about, as opposed to Ron DeSantis. This is huge, what happened in Michigan, isn't it?
14: It, It's absolutely. Enormous. I could not agree with your friend more. Your friend is completely correct. It should be. It's It's a much more interesting story than Florida, which is a red state that voted red. OK, huge yeah. shock. Uh, mm-hmm. Michigan is a bona fide swing state and Democrats achieved so much there in one night just this week. Um, it, it is uh, arguably the biggest story of the night Um But notwithstanding the fact that we still don't know which party controls the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, that's also a pretty big story, I admit.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was listening um, to uh, news radio as I was driving on an errand this morning. And I heard um, uh, a political pundit say, you know, you know, we can say that we think this is how it's going to turn out, that this is the way things are leaning. He said, but you might be asking yourself, well, if that's the way they feel, why can't they just call it? And he said, we cannot 100 percent call it because it is still a mathematical possibility that it will go another way. So, in other words... Here's what we think, you know. But we, you know, we thought a lot of wrong wrong things before, so we're tired of sticking our necks out. So maybe this time we should wait until the votes are counted.
14: (laughs) What a novel concept!
1: Mm -hmm. Well,
14: and in these, especially in these down ballot races, these state legislative races, they're routinely decided by like under 500 votes, Um, and we're going to have some races. Uh, for and, and for majority control of a chamber in Pennsylvania they're going to be decided by like maybe a dozen or a couple of dozen votes these 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 two seats that will determine which party controls the chamber are both like straight up 50-50 right now they're counting you know absentees they're going to be counting provisional soon it's uh, we still have a, a ways to go but every vote has to be counted so we know for
1: sure and you have uh, just and, mentioned and, 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 one of my favorite states oh,
14: Oh, yeah. No, it's another that was definitely another big, bright spot on uh, on Tuesday, for sure. Um, Democrat. I mean, obviously, higher up the ballot. It's great that Mastriano won't be running Pennsylvania. He is a scary extremist um, and it's even better. Actually, it's not even better. It's still just good, but it, it's just as good. But it's just a different way that Dr. Oz will not be a member of the U.S. Senate.
1: Yes, <laughs> uh, <it's so> gross. <laughs> that um, that would have been. Well, you know, I'm not even going to start to use adjectives because I may have to save those just in case Herschel Walker looks like he's ending up in the Senate, which I I can't believe the voters of Georgia will let happen. But stranger things have occurred. But Pennsylvania, I thought, was very interesting. I didn't honestly pay that much attention to Josh Shapiro, who uh, defeated Doug Mastriano. uh, But I was listening to Tom Hartman a few days ago, and he said that, uh, he thinks he's an incredible, incredible speaker and that, you know, we might be seeing big things from Josh Shapiro in the future. Do you have any thoughts on that?
14: Oh, I, I love that idea. Now, he is he is an excellent he was an excellent candidate, ran a great campaign and, uh, yeah, has the sort of charisma and uh, sort of non-threatening uh just demeanor and appearance <laughs> that people love in a candidate. So um, I, I bet that uh, we're going to be seeing more from him after he finishes out his tenure as governor of Pennsylvania. I like to think that he will keep stick around and uh, continue doing uh, great things.
1: And thank goodness Pennsylvania is not going to be led by Doug Mastriano, who really was, I think, a real bottom of the barrel candidate. Uh, I loved the way in his um, Wall Street Journal editorial yesterday, Carl Rove was looking at why Republicans didn't do better. And one of his suggestions was, well, le- next time around, let's field candidates who aren't nuts or knuckleheads. And I thought, well, there's a it's a start. It's a start call. <laughs> uh, no nuts, no knuckleheads. OK, that's we're setting the bar low. But maybe maybe low is still a reach. And when you look at somebody like Doug Mastriano, who was just so, he didn't hold back. I mean, some far-right candidates, when they finally get on the main ballot, they try to uh, re, uh, rehab their reputations. Suddenly they're not so extreme. Suddenly they're fuzzy on these controversial issues. It's like they try, ever so subtly to claw back the middle ground that they gave up to win their primary. I did not see that in Doug Mastriano. He was like, yeah, I'm crazy. Let's double down on the crazy. Here you go. What is what was your sense of that?
14: You're you're absolutely right. I mean, we saw we saw federal candidates and other statewide candidates in other parts of the country scrub their websites after they won their primaries uh, of their especially their extreme uh, stances on abortion. Because uh, after the Dobbs decision, uh, Republicans were beginning to realize that uh, they they caught the car mm-hmm. and they didn't know what to do with that messaging and knew that, you know, over half the population losing a fundamental right was super not popular. So they definitely try a bunch of candidates did try to walk that back. Um, but Mastrogano did not. And part of that was that he was written off fairly early by national Republicans. And so he wasn't getting any outside Funding and the pressure that goes with it to rehab his image. (laughs) So Mm. we just figured he was so far gone from go that no one ever bothered.
1: Huh? Interesting. Yeah, we had the same thing with Darren Bailey, who was a—he's a very far right Republican candidate who went up against J.B. Pritzker, and he was asked if he had the opportunity, would he would he um, take Roe v. Wade's protections? off the books in Illinois. And and he wouldn't say yes and he wouldn't say no. He's like, well, that's not a power I would have, you know, sort of like the Brett Kavanaugh. Well, it's already established law. You know, we're not going to uh, mess with that. He, I wouldn't do it even if I could. And I thought to myself, who do you think is going to believe you? Who, you know, you yeah, were just yeah. campaigning downstate about how, um, what you want to do and how strict you want the laws to be. And all of a sudden, you wouldn't do anything about it even if you could. I mean, come on!
10: Yeah,
14: reporters, uh, reporters, uh, well, also reporters, but voters have a great nose for BS, uh, and they and rep- voters have a low tolerance for candidates who uh, try to talk out of both sides of their mouth. And I think that uh, that's that sort of preference was definitely represented pretty well on election night, generally speaking.
1: We need to take a break. I'm talking to Carolyn Fiddler. She's with Courier News. She's an expert on all things state. We're going to continue our discussion right after this.
5: This is WCPT 820, where facts matter.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I'm joined by Carolyn Fidler. She's with the Courier Newsrooms, and she has been studying what is going on in state legislatures around the country. We are talking about the midterm elections. We talked about Michigan. We talked about Pennsylvania. And uh, my heart is breaking, Carolyn, uh, but I think we have to talk about Ohio. Yes. Yes, we do.
14: It is a sad story, Ohio. Um,
1: I was born in Ohio. You know, I grew up in Ohio. I went to college in Ohio. And um, I I still have family in Ohio. And they were very sad. They, you know, they were very sad to see that J.D. Vance was going to be their next senator and uh, not Mr. Ryan, who they really liked. And I, I just I what 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 is please share it to me what is going on in my former home state? I'm repudiating it now.
14: Uh, Ohio is just going red. Uh, It was a swing state for a very long time, and it just no longer is. Uh, Republicans have aided and abetted that by gerrymandering the heck out of the congressional delegation and its state legislature. But uh, even with fair maps, it's not... uh, It seems unlikely that Democrats would hold a majority in either of those chambers. It is just the red state now, and uh, not just... uh, Democrats didn't just come up short in the U.S. Senate race, but they also uh, lost two um, uh, state Supreme Court races that uh, would have flipped the balance of power in the state. But Republicans held those seats and nothing will change.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm very sad that that's happened. But you know, it's so funny because back in 2016. Back when everybody was saying, well, you know, basically you don't even have to go vote. Hillary Clinton's got this in the bag. I remember uh, Ray and I were going to Ohio to visit my family. And they live in a, a small town, but you have to drive through a lot of rural country to get there. And we were seeing, we were driving by all these farms and just, you know, rural houses. And there was Trump sign after Trump sign After Trump sign and Ray looked at me and he was like, I don't feel good about this. And I looked at him and I was like, I know what you're I know what you mean. I mean, this is this is terrifying what we're seeing here. So I guess um, that trend in Ohio is continuing. Okay, let's do a palate cleanser with uh, another bright spot, (laughs) Carolyn. Well,
14: and I actually would like to when we come back, I'll give you maybe a silver lining on, on Ohio. So well i'm ready oh well um i would say that uh a political party that's not doing well in the state usually has to like hit rock bottom before it's able to like effectively rebuild because um, a lot of old ideas that were not that no longer work for a party tend to stick around longer than they ought to but then once things really hit bottom parties tend to have to clean house and restructure and restaff and hopefully that will happen in ohio and the Democratic Party will come back there with some strength and hopefully start winning some elections again.
1: Okay, All right. okay, Sounds good. That's good. Um, (laughs) Let's look at California. California is always a fun state. (laughs) 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 Karen Bass is closing. Um, She's up against Eric Caruso for mayor of the city of Los Angeles. It looked like she was going to lose that election, but as they have continued to count votes, Karen Bass is cutting into Mr. Caruso's lead. We will have to just wait and stand by to see if it is enough. California also was one of the states that had one of those abortion measures um, on the books. What else do we need to know about California to make us feel good today?
14: (laughs) uh, um, It's a state that is... Very solidly blue, and will probably remain that way for a long time. Um, and yes, abortion rights are even more protected now in California than they were previously. And uh, and Karen Bass is like I've I've actually met her. She's actually very smart and very um, very uh, has a lovely demeanor. And I think that I suspect that she will make a good uh, mayor. So fingers crossed.
1: Well, you know, uh, let's uh, let's go into the rewind machine. I think Karen Bass would have made a hell of a vice president. And I know she was on the short list. Um, Do you remember back that far two years ago? Oh, wow. Yes. Ancient (laughs) history. But yeah.
14: (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I was I was a little bit surprised um, that he picked Kamala Harris um, because I thought that. You know, while they, I certainly, you know, liked a lot of things about her and thought she was impressive. It seemed that her resume was a little on the short side. I mean, she hadn't been in the Senate very long. You know, she she didn't really have that um, lengthy career that you might expect. And I, I think that I think it's. You know, wh- whatever gain he got from picking Kamala in the short term, I think that it's ca- kind of causing problems now because, you know, he keeps saying, Joe Biden keeps saying, I'm going to run again. Don't worry. You know, I'm going to be running in the next election cycle. But if something happens and he's not, I definitely think Kamala is going to get some serious primary challengers. What do you think?
14: Hmm. That uh, that does seem to be well within the realm of possibility, Um vice presidents don't get the same deference as presidents do when it comes to folks running against them so uh yeah i think that would definitely uh be in the cards and um i and i suspect that that biden part of the reason biden opted for kamala over uh karen bass was they had been on debate stages together he had seen her perform uh and you know against other candidates in front of an audience and so i think that probably uh definitely helped bump her up in in his in his eyes uh, in terms of like weighing folks for that position. Um, But that's just that's just a hunch. I don't actually know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also, you know, I don't think he's I don't think he's necessarily done her every any favors by instead of, you know, assigning her a piece of legislation to try to get support for. I mean, he's having her run around the world and, you know, meet with world leaders and attend this conference and that conference. And while that may be, you know, good for her to get exposed to those people, I think the people back home don't necessarily appreciate those kinds of trips. You know, if she could say, you know, that infrastructure bill, you know, I was the reason it passed. I got, you know, X number of votes or I got some people to cross the aisle. I think that would set her up a little bit more successfully for the future. But what do I know? They're not asking me, (laughs) Carolyn. I think they should. I have lots of good ideas. I know. It's just shocking to me the way nobody calls me up and says, well, yep, Joan, what do you think? Mm. Okay, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, California. Where should we go from here, Carolyn? Oh, well,
14: let's see. We could go we could dip our toe into Kentucky, which is another place oh, where an abortion, ba- abortion was on the ballot. And mm-hmm. uh, in this case, the no vote is what people who like reproductive freedom wanted. And the no vote won in Kentucky. Abortion restrictions will not be enshrined in that state constitution, which is a big deal. So,
1: yeah, that we was there. the one that was written the way I hate it when they do ballot measures where you read it and you can't figure out. If no means no, or if yes means no, that was very poorly worded, I thought. Intentionally. (laughs) Yeah. But people figured it out, didn't they? They
14: sure did. And uh, I I hope that someone does a dive into the campaign against that measure at some point. I know there were a bunch after Kansas, but that was August, and there wasn't a whole bunch going on. Everyone's trying to not just figure out what happened on Tuesday, but also still figure out who won on Tuesday. So I feel like that Kansas uh, uh, autopsy is probably not going to come anytime soon, but I sure hope it does.
1: You know, uh, taking a step back and and looking at the nation as a whole, I don't know if this figure changed. The last number I saw was that nationwide on state ballots, there were two hundred ninety nine candidates who were openly election deniers. And I saw, I think it was the Washington Post a few days, or a couple of days ago, did a a photograph of the people who won office in various states who were election deniers. But it didn't, it certainly wasn't 299. Talk a little bit about um, how those people did or didn't do. Well,
14: the good news is that a lot of election deniers uh, who are running to actually run elections in states, they pretty much all lost, not all of them, but uh, in key sing- swing states like um, Michigan, uh, Nevada, well, we're, we're still waiting to see how things go there. There's still a place, some places where votes are outstanding, um, but it looks like uh, we'll still have a, we will have a Democratic Secretary of State in Arizona, fingers crossed for that. Um, but again, some votes are still being counted there. but what people are not talking about I mean it's obviously it's good that a bunch of election deniers lost, and we should be talking about that. But a lot of election deniers won at the state legislative level. It's uh, I'm not sure how many we have in state o- in office yet, but there will they will definitely be part of Republican caucuses in these states. They will be you know voting on things, and they will. And if they hang around for a few terms, they will have seniority in their caucus. And who knows how far these election deniers will go and what they will eventually be able to accomplish. The thing about state legislatures, we don't worry about what happens in the next two years. We have to worry about what happens in the next eight years. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't I I wouldn't I wouldn't, you know, dance on that grave quite yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it's a process. It's a process. We can't expect Uh, to win every one of those elections right off as long as we continue to move in the right direction. That's my mantra and I say it almost every day. Um, you know, you, you got to, you know, you gotta look at the bright side. You gotta look at what we accomplished. I never, you know, I don't care what I was reading in the papers. I don't care what the polls were showing. In my heart of hearts, I never, ever believed that there was going to be a red tsunami. It just didn't seem to fit with what I saw and how women reacted to to Dobbs and, and, you know, the fact that the Democrats under Joe Biden had accomplished so much and how some of the things that were still problems were global problems. It never fit. The narrative that I felt that I was being fed by mainstream media and all the polling never seemed to fit with what I thought in my head. What did you think about that, Carolyn? I mean, were you shocked there was no red tsunami? um, I wouldn't say shocked.
14: Uh, It did seem as though like the national media narrative was overselling how well Republicans were going to do. Um, But also polling is broken. (laughs) Yes. And pollsters themselves will tell you they're trying to figure out how to fix it. So those didn't phase me so much. But um, you can still pulling aside, you can still get a sense of how well candidates are doing based on money they're raising, money they're spending, how they're running their campaigns, what people on the ground are saying. And so it did not feel as though Republicans were coming in in a super strong position on Tuesday. And sure enough, they were not. So um, yeah, it was it was a pleasant. It was still a surprise. Um, Mm -hmm. But not a massive, massive shock the way it was for, it seems like a lot of Republicans, they're kind of reeling. And it's, oh, the shot in Florida is real.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, at the Courier newsrooms across the country, you're probably above this. But even though I know they're flawed you know polls, it's like crack cocaine. Oh, I'm just gonna, oh, just one more. I'm just gonna read one more poll. I'm, I'm just gonna talk, and then I'll stop. I promise, I'll stop after this one last poll. I, I tell the audience, don't pay attention to them. You know they're flawed, and yet I just can't seem to break up with them. Uh, uh, I'm sure. That I will, I'm going to work on this. It's an issue. Um, you know, one day at a time. Carolyn Fiddler and I <laughs> are going to take a break for news and we're going to continue talking about the states and the midterms right after this.
0: Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820.
1: This hour of Joan Esposito Live, Local, and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkburg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855 david or visit 56david.com.
0: Joan Esposito Live, Local, and Progressive on WCPT 820.
1: I'm joined by Carolyn Fidler. She's the political editorial director at Courier News, and she's. I've had her on the radio before. I always have a lot of fun talking to her, but... Carolyn, I have to tell you, sometimes while I'm talking to somebody, I'll like, I don't know, check their Twitter feed just to see if there's anything that they've been posting about that that I should bring into the conversation. And I have to tell you, I could not love you more for the fact that you actually posted about the death of Kevin Conroy. I know Gallagher's getting all the attention, but my son texted me this morning, Kevin Conroy died. And I was like, oh, my God, no. Um, and most I didn't bother. I was to mention it at the beginning of the show, because if somebody that I think the audience really um, knows um, dies, I I, I mention it. And I thought, you know, you probably can't go to Kevin Conroy. It's just too deep in the weeds. He was the yeah. voice. Of the cartoon Batman, the best voice that I've ever heard come out of a human being. I have in my adult life written two fan letters. One of them, (laughs) Carolyn, was to Kevin Conroy. And I am embarrassed to mention that, but that is what a huge fan of this man I was.
14: No, I I love that and yeah, he was he was uh apparently just well known to be a really nice guy generally speaking, but yeah, he achieved uh notoriety back in the 90s when he was the voice of Batman and Bruce Wayne on Batman the Animated Series, uh which was a pretty seminal uh animated show back in the day, but uh he continues to be the most recognizable voice of Batman, really. Yeah. Um and And it it was a huge, a huge loss. He was only 66.
1: I know, I know. I guess he he had a very serious uh, cancer that uh, took him very quickly. Um, But if you've ever watched a Batman cartoon and Batman has this deep, resonant voice with all this gravitas, that's Kevin Conroy. It is it is an unmistakable unmistakable voice and now I was I was very frustrated at the beginning of the show like oh I can't talk about that nobody's gonna know who I'm talking about but I think it's so tragic but you gave me the opportunity Carolyn and yay, um, yay another uh, Kevin Conroy uh, geek in the crowd uh, Carolyn looks at you know there actually is a political reason to have her on folks she uh, looks at <laughs> state politics. And we are talking about the midterm elections, and we have been talking about election deniers. We have been talking about some of the successes that we've seen. Um, Arizona, what's up? Hap- is Arizona turning blue? Do you think little by little, or is that? Am I too Pollyanna here?
14: I, you're not Pollyanna. I just think that people. Uh, e- say that Democrats come out of, of Arizona with a whole bunch of statewide wins, which is entirely possible. Votes are still being counted, and things seem to be kicking uh, Democrats' way, generally speaking. But um, I worry that people are going to fall into, like, the Virginia trap that they did after 2008. Oh, Virginia's a blue state now. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Except for you know, people who live and work and do politics in Virginia always knew that it was not a blue state. It was purple. Not blue, no longer red, but absolutely purple as heck. And I think that's the case for Arizona, too. And uh, even if Democrats come out of this with some good statewide wins in the governorship and secretary of state race, for example, um, no one can afford to get complacent. It's still going to be a very swingy state with a lot of very energetic Republicans. (laughs) And um, but I am cautiously optimistic. Um, So fingers crossed. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. And one of the things with the midterms that I thought was a big success that didn't get a whole lot of attention was that there were so many Democratic governors elected. More, that was one area, I will say, where I was I was surprised, where um, certain governorships that I didn't think we had much of a shot at. And then we had candidates who, who pulled it out. And speaking of Arizona, unless you've seen some more recent results, I think uh, Katie Hobbs and Carrie Lake, I think it's too still too close to call. Is that correct?
14: That is correct. I, I literally just checked the, uh, the New York Times uh, feed uh, a few minutes ago. And definitely still too close to call, um, too early to call because votes are still coming in. There should be another batch dropped at some point tonight. Um, I don't remember what time. And then. I had a couple hours because I'm on the eastern I'm in the eastern time zone and Arizona very much is not. Uh, but mm-hmm. sometime late tonight we'll have an update on vote totals there and we'll have a clearer picture of who is going to win some of these races. So very exciting. Also, Arizona is about to have its very first lieutenant governor. Not not after tonight, but they passed a ballot measure that creates the office. Arizona had no lieutenant governor until now.
1: Really, I didn't know that. No, yeah, not that I'm that. honestly sure, really, what a lieutenant governor does. It's kind of like the vice president, you know? Do they do just whatever the <laughs> governor doesn't want to do? I don't. I don't know. Well, and, and just like the the
14: vice president in the U.S. Senate, uh, most lieutenant governors preside over their state senates and uh, break ties. So they do, They are pretty important because state senates are very important. So. Um, But Maine, New Hampshire, Oregon and Wyoming are the other uh, four states that do not have lieutenant governors. Just Uh,
1: let's talk about what happened on the East Coast. I know there were some um, some uh, Vermont, I think, was one of the states that uh, affirmed reproductive rights. And was it Vermont that now has is it Vermont that now has the openly lesbian uh, governor or is that Oregon? I'm confused. That is I've Oregon. Lost- that Oregon. is Oregon.
14: That is Tina Kotek, and I love Tina Kotek. I'm a huge Tina, Tina Kotek fan since her time in the legislature. I, I have Tell high hopes about for her governorship. Oh, she is incredibly smart, uh, very politically savvy, uh, but also just like a really smart person—the kind of person you want to have running things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unlike, I don't know, Elon Musk running Twitter, who is clearly not. Marshall so Walker, smart, yeah, so long, so uh-huh. so smart, gotcha. So, <laughs> so uh, and and she's been in the legislature long enough. She knows where all the laborers of power are. She knows how to get stuff done. Uh, so. I uh, am very excited about that win out there. Vermont, weirdly, has a Republican governor,
7: but he now
14: faces Democratic supermajorities in his state legislature. So good luck to him.
1: Wow. That's always interesting to me. And sometimes I don't know if people do this consciously, but sometimes I think voters almost unconsciously will um, will set up. If they've got a legislature that leans one way, they'll, they'll choose a governor that leans the other way. It happens a surprising amount of the time. I mean, that's kind of what we had in Wisconsin with Tony Evers, you know, with a Republican legislature. And yet the voters chose the Democratic governor. Of course, the Republicans in the state legislature did everything in their power to kneecap him before he oh, came yeah. into office. But but still, I think that's an interesting counterbalance that seems to happen more often than I would expect.
14: No, that's uh, that's actually a really good point. And uh, divided government absolutely has its benefits for for both sides of the aisle and for the people who live in a state uh, divided government tends to produce more compromise, more middle of the road uh, policies. No, no one gets everything they want all the time. Um But, uh, yeah, the Republicans in Wisconsin came very, very close to being able to completely ignore Tony Evers. They were very close to winning supermajorities in the state House, state assembly and the state Senate. Uh, They got their supermajority in the state Senate. But that doesn't mean anything if they don't also have it in the state House, which they do not. So Governor Evers vetoes will be protected. Thank goodness.
1: (laughs) Um, As you look, as you were looking at all the states um since the polls closed on tuesday are were there any other offices that uh you were either surprised by who won it or um or thought it was particularly interesting
14: uh well i uh, uh where to start <laughs> <laughs> Uh, New Hampshire is always kind of a weird creature, and I say that with affection. But their state house has four hundred members, and that is weird anywhere, but especially in such a tiny state. Uh, so, well, isn't it? Pretty much so everybody waiting.
1: who lives in the state is in the legislature. I think that's pretty much how it goes. I mean, at some point to the state, you're in the, life, well, you're I feel in the like legislature. Has to be, yeah, yeah.
14: Like, I- I'm dying for someone to go in there and do some like real like polling and research about how many people who live in in New Hampshire have been at some point a member of the state <laughs> house. Cause that, I bet it's a large, large percentage, but um, because those seats, because there's so many seats, those seats are very, very, very small. Those districts are small, I should say. So they're still counting votes to figure out who has a majority in that chamber. Uh, the clerk of the house uh, says it's not out of the question that, a tie could result, which would just be hilarious because <laughs> oh, there's my. No tiebreaker in the New Hampshire House, so there would be so much horse trading, maybe power sharing. It would just be anarchy for a little while, and like no one wants anarchy, but it's also kind of academically interesting if you've been watching state politics for a long time. So,
1: well, oh yeah, not,
14: do win a majority, but if if it's a tie, that would be absolutely fascinating. So.
1: It would be. And maybe it would um, be an icebreaker because, you know, it seems like we've gotten so far away from doing anything, whether it's on the national level or the state level, doing anything on a bipartisan basis. It's like, you know, if somebody has a bill and they get two votes from the other party, it's like, oh, my God, look, oh, my God, it's bipartisanship. And you know, it used there used to be more horse trading. There used to be more support from opposing parties on on various things. Maybe 50, 50. that maybe that would be they could usher in a new era of let's work together. I don't know. that's probably that's probably. I love your optimism, <laughs> so <much>. your optimism
14: so <laughs> much. however unfounded it may happy. be, Joan. I just worry that you know back you know 10, 20 years ago, a Democrat will look at a glass of water and say it's half full. A Republican might look at that same glass of water and say it's half empty. But they all agreed it was a glass with water in it. But now Republicans will look at that same glass and just decide it's a dragon. And <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to connect and make policy with people who are just acting as though they're divorced from reality. I don't know that they actually are, but they are sure sounding like it sometimes.
1: So, yeah, I actually have more sympathy for the people who really do honestly believe the crazy stuff rather than the people who I th- and I think Carrie Lake is a fine example of this, who simply take positions based on what's going to get me the most support. I think that's what Kevin McCarthy does. I think that's what Donald Trump does. I mean dumb, you know okay I remember reading in uh I think it was the first book the first wolf book after he became president and talking about how in 2014 he had met with um republican operatives because he he was wanted to explore running for president and the guy was like well you know you'd have to have this position you'd have to believe this and you'd have to believe this and you'd have to believe that And he was like, that's fine. What else? What else do I have to believe? You know, what else does what else? uh, What other positions do I have to take? He didn't care about about whether something was right, whether something was something he believed in or could support with a good conscience. It was just who do I have to be? Who do I have to morph into to get people to vote for me? And I think Kevin McCarthy does that. And I think I think Carrie Lake has uh, done that in uh, Arizona. That's those are the people that I have contempt for.
14: Fair enough. Not the true believers, but the one who, ones who yeah. uh, you know paint themselves as true believers.
1: Yeah. Huh. I mean, sense. I don't like anything about Ron Johnson, but I think he is definitely crazy. And I think that a lot of the stuff that comes out of his mouth, he actually believes. I think that's very sad. But I, you know, I think that's that's who he is. I was talking to Joe Walsh uh, the other day and and he was talking about how when he was a new congressman, you know, he got to know Ron Johnson and he said it was a different guy. He was a guy with values and he stood for something and he didn't know what happened. And but then he said, but, you know, like Jim Jordan from Ohio, he's he is who he's always been. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, a guy who turns a blind eye
14: when uh, sexual assault is happening in his locker room. Yeah, that's who Jim Jordan yes,
1: And, and uh, no, no, no. I've heard rumors for a long time that George Clooney's production company is doing a documentary on what happened at Ohio State when Jim Jordan oh. was, I think it was at Ohio State, when Jim Jordan was there. And I keep waiting for this documentary to drop, and supposedly it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Um, But I think that's going to be really eye opening. Hey, um, Lady B, um, excuse me, Carolyn, I'm doing a broadcast professional thing here. Lady B, I can't remember. Did I take the 415 break or not? Oh, okay. Um, Broadcast professional, Carolyn, you must always know when the commercials are. So please let us take that break now. Uh, Carolyn Fiddler, and I will be right back after this.
0: Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. It's just refreshing.
5: The Hal Sparks Radio Program. Grandpa's just rage-tweeting, and Ivanka's not calling right now and saying, Dad, what are you writing? You can't write somebody as a death wish. You know what I mean? Nobody's even bothering to have that conversation anymore, which is in many ways a good sign. It means that they're not expecting anything from him. They've had conversations with him. They know he's not running. They know this is a bluff. Hal Sparks, Saturdays from 11 to 1 on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: And I am joined by Carolyn Fiddler. She is the political editorial director at Courier Newsroom. You can find her, at least for now, on Twitter <laughs> at CFIDD. Um, though I did notice in your bio that you also have joined Mastodon, as have I, but I can't figure out how it works just yet. I can't figure out how to find people. I don't see a search function. Um, I have to spend a little bit of uh, a little bit of time on that one because it takes me a while to uh, catch on to any kind of new technology. Um, The. I know this isn't talking about the midterms, but the news today that Elon shut down his whole spend eight dollars, get a blue check. The fact, do you, I think that he's in real trouble. Um, For those of you who aren't aware, Eli Lilly, the drug company, somebody created a fake Eli Lilly account paid for a blue check so people thought it was legitimate. And then yesterday, after early afternoon, they tweeted out that the company had decided that all the insulin that they sell going forward is just going to be free. They weren't going to charge (laughs) people for it. And it got retweeted, and it got like thousands of likes. Eli Lilly's stock went down by more than 2%. Two other drug companies that sell insulin also saw one of them had their stock drop by 4%. One of them saw their stock drop by two to, it was two to 3%. These are serious financial losses. And I don't know uh, who runs Eli Lilly, but I would seriously be considering a lawsuit against Twitter right now. And as of, um, I don't know if it happened last night or this morning. Elon has shut down this whole you can pay $8 uh, a month and be verified as anybody idea there. Well, he says they're pausing it, Carolyn. They're not closing it. They're just pausing it. I mean, that's some real serious damage. That isn't just people making fun of Elon Musk and him getting his little feelings hurt. (laughs) I mean, that
14: that is that is a good part of what's happening to Twitter, but you're right. Um, this produced, like, real-world harm. Not that I have uh, much sympathy for these drug companies, including Eli Lilly, for charging boatloads of money for insulin. Insulin should be free. But mm. this is real, measurable harm that was done by, Eli, uh, by Elon Musk's changes to, you know, unnecessary, incomprehensible changes to what was a, a perfectly... Well-functioning platform. It certainly had its problems, but um, also like he just in- implemented all these things so quickly. And Twitter is under like an FTC consent decree. They can't do any. They can't even sneeze without checking with them. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, I think that Elon Musk's uh, Twitter purchase is about to get a lot more expensive. <laughs> Well, I've
1: actually been seeing uh, reports that it's possible he is going to be declaring bankruptcy for Twitter and and relatively soon. I don't know what that would mean for those of us on the site. Yeah, I wonder if that's what he wanted all
14: along. He was he was mad that people were making fun of him on Twitter. So he's like, I'll just buy it and destroy it. I I don't think that's what he was doing. But, you know, who knows?
1: (laughs) Yeah, really, who knows? <laughs> One thing that we can all step back and agree on, though, is I think this has once and for all debunked the myth that because somebody's a a billionaire, they must be a genius. I think some yeah. billionaires yeah. get to be billionaires because they they got lucky. They had a good idea that was the right idea at the right time, had the right support, was able to grow in the right fashion. I think that there's a heck of a lot more luck in an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos than either of them would be willing to admit.
14: Yeah, I, I agree with that. They had a good idea and they had it first. Um, and then a lot of other probably smarter people made it work, made it successful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no, no, no one does anything by themselves. There's no there's no there are no actual self-made millionaires. That takes a lot of people to, to, to come to that kind of success. And so I and it takes a lot of people to, well, it doesn't take a lot of people to lead it to this level of failure, it turns out, because
1: Elon's just firing everyone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You're, you're fired and you're fired and you're fired. And, oh, by the way, I didn't realize those top executives had golden parachutes of uh, over a hundred million dollars. Oh, well, um, too late. They've gotten their little cardboard boxes and, and, and hit the road. Um, in the short amount of time we have left, is there any, Is there any candidate or any race that you uh, really wanted to talk about that we haven't hit yet?
14: Oh, we've we've covered like all all the hot ones. We talked about Arizona, uh, Kansas uh, kind of is kind of a good story, kind of a sad story. Obviously, Kansas was very much talked about in August because they had that uh, anti-abortion ballot measure that failed spectacularly. The Republican state legislature put that on the ballot in the on the primary date in August. Trying to, they were hoping that the lower, sort of more conservative electorate that tends to come out for primaries in Kansas uh, would help that measure pass. Um, but that didn't work out for them. But it might have saved their supermajority in the state house this time around, which is important because Kansas just reelected their Democratic governor. People forget; I mm-hmm. think it's easy to forget that Kansas has a Democratic governor. So if they had put that abortion ballot measure on the on the, on the ballot for the general election. Uh, they might have lost enough seats to lose that screw majority in the House, but uh Democrats were only able to flip one of the three they needed to destroy that veto proof majority. So uh, Governor Kelly still <laughs> has a has a hard few years ahead of her.
1: Wow. Uh, Carolyn, I love talking to you. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. You know, we ought to get you uh, some time in here to guest host. I think you'd be—I think you'd be really good at it. I don't know if if uh, the powers that be above would would see that as a as, as a resume building trait for you, um, but I think you're terrific. My audience loves what you have to say and the, and the way you say it, and it's just great to have you here.
14: I can't think of any higher praise. Thank you. And yeah, let me know if I can help out. I'd be happy to be happy to pinch it. I think it'd be a boatload of fun.
1: Yeah, it it is a boatload of fun. I am going to share your contact information with the um, with the mucky mucks that make those decisions above my pay grade. Um, But I'm glad to to know that you're open to the idea, because I think uh, I think you bring a lot to the table and my audience really benefits from hearing you. So thank you again. Thank you. We are going to take a break and uh, then I'm going to come back and uh, we're going to have a little bit of a little bit of fun and culture before we go to the weekend. Uh, that and more right after this. Information is power.
4: Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge.
1: I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio
4: because information
0: is power. WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: You may have heard uh, some ads we are running uh, about a play. Um, oftentimes, that would be something that you don't necessarily hear on WCPT. A lot of our um, a lot of our ads are political. Um, but this is a play that uh, talks about labor and uh, the struggle for for rights. Um, Larry Kerwin is presenting this play at the Irish American Cultural Center. It is his play. You may have heard our ads for it. It's called A Table for Two at the Dill Pickle. And Larry is here to talk to us about it. Larry, thank you so much for uh, joining us.
4: A pleasure, John.
1: What is it that we should, you know, we are a very progressive, a very political station, so uh, a play about labor icons um, is right up our alley. We are a big union station, big union supporter. Tell me about the play. Our audi- Just uh, tell our audience what it's all about and what kind of um, an evening at the theater they'll have.
4: Well, it deals with two icons of the early 20th century, um, two labor icons. One was Mother Jones, who was a a resident in uh, Chicago for a lot of her life. You know, she was born in Cork in Ireland. And the other one was James Larkin, also known as Big Jim Larkin, um, who came out here uh, in 1913 after leading uh, big strikes in ireland so both were irish and um i got asked by bridget duffy who is um a great fan of mother jones and is uh, portraying mother jones in the play if i do something you know do a a 10-minute piece uh, about Larkin and Mother Jones, and uh, yeah, it seemed like a good idea. I was in Chicago at the time at a, a show at the Niederlander called Paradise Square, and um, it was just great to meet her. And the the piece is probably about 25, 30 minutes, um, and it deals with the, the lives of these two people, larkin wants to have a meeting with mother jones he needs some advice some personal advice and through that device we get to know the two of them and get to know the history of what was actually going on in chicago uh, around 1919.
1: there were some really big issues that were being wrangled over then like child labor Um, How much how did you find out all of the history here to write this play?
4: Well, I'm I'm political myself, so, um, you know, if you're political in your left wing, uh, it's something that you know about. Um, In my own background, I'm from a town called Wexford and Larkin had led a big strike. And uh, when the. Um, workers were all locked out and laid off for wanting to join a union. So I grew up with this type of thing. Um, you know, it's very easy to find out what's going, what was happening in American labor. But one of the things that would really strike you, it struck me anyway, was that uh, child labor wasn't abolished in the U.S. until the 1930s. I find that kind of staggering. You know, I yeah. assumed that it kind of, you know, gone in the early 1900s or whatever. But this is a tough country. You know, um, the uh, the authorities, the militia, the army, the police were always on the side of the bosses, never on the side of the workers. So people... Like Larkin and Mother Jones, you know, they had to be prepared to go to jail, and they did go. Uh, they had to be prepared for uh, to be beaten up. You know, it, it wasn't an easy country to live in, especially if you were an immigrant looking for work.
1: In one of the in in the little bit of background, I was reading about this. Um I didn't realize that Mother Jones lost her husband and her four kids to yellow fever, and that kind of uh, do you feel that that spurred her to become more activist and devote her time to activism?
4: Yeah, I would say it did. Uh, she never mentioned it for the rest of her life. She, that happened in Memphis, and she came back. She had been a, a school teacher. Uh, she had grown up pretty much in uh Toronto and had moved uh into the US uh, and then became a dressmaker because she didn't like the uh the condition she was working under as a school teacher. Uh, so I I think yeah she came back to uh, Chicago, started a dressmaking business and um, was working for rich people making dresses and then could see what was happening in the streets and started to take an interest, more a personal interest in uh, union organizing. Her husband who died had been a union organizer in Memphis. Um, but then she devoted herself totally to that. Um, she never spoke about the death of her husband or the four children. So I do bring that up. At a certain point in the play, as to as try and divine how she felt about the whole thing, because it was just like it almost didn't happen in her life. She restarted her life in Chicago after the death, and just went on and would go anywhere. As the uh, same thing with Larkin, and the same thing with Joe Hill, who was around at that point too. Um, they were members of the International Workers of the World, who were called the Wobblies. And they would go anywhere there was a strike, wherever working people needed their help, that's where they were. And it didn't make any difference if uh, the reception was hostile or if the army was up against them. They They stood firm
1: with the workers. Hmm. Now, it's, the play is called A Table for Two at the Dill Pickle. The Dill Pickle was a real place, wasn't it? Yeah, and
4: I knew nothing about that. Um, I was in touch with uh, a number of people in Chicago uh, about labor history here, and um, one Rosemary Kurer, uh turned me on to the Dill Pickle, and oddly, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, one of the things that I knew about it was that it was in a place called Bughouse Square.
1: Mm-hmm. I used to live right by Bughouse Square. I know it well.
4: Really? that seemed like a, a fabulous name to me. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, it's
1: actually, uh, we also, it's got a name. Uh, there's a uh, It's Washington Square Park, but most people know it as Bughouse Square. That's, his, that's its unofficial name.
4: yeah. Well, oddly enough, there's another labor leader I'm I'm very much interested in. She was called the Rebel Girl, and her name was Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who started giving speeches when she was 15 or 16. So I've been researching her for quite a while uh, to do a musical about her. And it turned out that the gentleman who founded the, the Dill Pickle had been her husband. His oh. name was Jack Jones, and he owned it. I think up until the 1930s or something like that, and then eventually it stopped being popular. I think uh, gangsters started to frequent it more, whereas it had been uh, a labor and bohemian um, place to meet people.
1: What is it that you want people to take away from this play?
4: I think anything that I do that's historical, I think you can relate it to what's going on today. And labor needs help. You know, the the unions are having a hard time. And ever since the unions started to lose members in the late 60s and early 70s, from that moment on, the working person hasn't made the amount of money that they should make for their labor. And even now you get the um the chairman of the Fed, Mr. Powell, who is willing at any point to drive the country into a recession to bring down inflation. So to me that that's that's crazy, you know, and a recession means millions of people will lose their jobs and it can last for years. Um so you know the issues are still out there today in that big mm-hmm. money and politics are are locked together, and the unions are not doing as well as they could and If we could get the unions to be stronger, then it would be just a much better country because you have two equal sides pushing and pulling at the moment it's money runs things,
1: yeah. And, you know, uh, if unions make a comeback in this country, we will see um an expanded and healthier middle class in America. You know, the middle class has shrunk as union membership has shrunk. And, you know, today it might not be that, you know, you face a beating by the police. But as we've seen with efforts to unionize an Amazon warehouse or unionize a Starbucks, people are still being punished um, I mean, you know, almost every week there's a story about um, Starbucks workers being fired after trying to bring in a union. It's still yeah. going on, the battle.
4: It's still going on. And one of the great things about watching these two characters, and I'm sure it'll be brought um, to life greatly by, um, by Bridget. And I think it's Will Casey who's playing, um, playing Larkin. They were larger-than-life figures. You know they they were heroes of their time, and people adored them because they were willing to do anything for the people. So my feeling is that if you got Sunday afternoon free, I'd get up to the uh the Irish Heritage Center on Knox Avenue because I think it'll be pretty explosive on stage up there. They're friends, but at the same time, they're kind of slightly rivals. And yet Larkin has come to Mother Jones for some advice, and uh, we'll see what that advice is.
1: Yeah. Um, so just this one performance, Sunday, November 13th at 3 p.m., that's all that you have. I know it's a world premiere here in Chicago, Just, but you're planning one performance at that day and that time.
4: Well, that's uh, you know I don't have anything to do with the uh, organizing of the uh, the play, but um, they're welcome to do it any other time they feel like. You know, I, I did it for the, the for these people um, so they can get the word out there about Mother Jones and Larkin and, and uh, the helping labor.
1: Well, so in in I addition to writing a table for two at the dill pickle, aren't you also working with a group of people? Who are trying to get a Mother Jones statue put up in Chicago?
4: Yes, yeah. I'm. Uh, in fact, this is kind of my contribution to it. You know, to to get the word out about Mother Jones. She's a, she's an amazing character. You know? you know, one one kind of slightly amazing thing about her too is that she, in her own mind, she lived to be a hundred. Um, <laughs> apparently, she was ninety three. So for once, a person is actually saying they're older than they are. And uh, I find that kind of interesting with Mother <laughs> Jones. She always said she was old, seven, at least seven years older than she actually was. So she's quite a character.
1: <laughs> um, if you are interested in getting tickets, you can go online to org slash events. Um, and, um, all the proceeds from the performance are going to the benefit for the Mother Jones statue campaign. And again, just to, uh, for me to give you the information, it's at the Irish American Heritage Center, th- Sunday the 13th, that is this coming Sunday at three o'clock. And the Irish American Heritage Center is on Knox, 4626 North Knox. In Chicago. Again, if you are interested in tickets, go online, motherjonesmuseum.org slash events. The play is called A Table for Two at the Dill Pickle. Uh, Larry, it has been very nice to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you for being here.
4: Uh, It's a pleasure, John. I I love Chicago and uh, I'll be back. And uh, do go do go to the the Irish Heritage Center, because I'm sure it'll be a hell of a party afterwards.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think you (laughs) I I suspect you might be right about that. Okay, let me know next time you're in town and we'll um, we'll take some time to talk politics. What do you say, Larry?
4: That sounds good to me, John. It's nice to meet a kindred soul.
1: (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Larry. Larry Kerwin's new play, A Table for Two at the Dill Pickle. Again, that's going to be this Sunday at 3 p.m. at the Irish American Heritage Center. That's 4626 North Knox Avenue in Chicago. If you want more information about the play or if you want tickets, it is go online, motherjonesmuseum.org slash events All the proceeds are going to benefit the Mother Jones statue campaign. We are going to take a break. Be back with a little more politics right after this.
0: Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820.
5: Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter.
0: Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820.
1: So, this weekend, as you are celebrating all the hard work you did, and as we wait to see where the final control of the House and the Senate ends up. Um, I don't know in some of the uh, states that are doing these mail-in ballots. I uh, I don't know whether they keep counting or whether they take the weekend off. I sure hope they keep counting. It would be nice to get some of these uh, results uh, determined. But you know what? It has been a great day. It has been a great day for democracy. It has been a great day to be a Democrat. And as if that wasn't enough good news, there is also good news in Ukraine. You may have seen this morning... Um, that Russia is pulling out of a town called Kherson. Kherson was the regional capital. It was the only Ukrainian regional capital that Russian forces had captured since the start of the invasion. And they have withdrawn. This is a really important move on Putin's part because this was a really capture of Kursin was a really important goal in their war, in their strategy. I think it's also very interesting that while clearly this was something they knew they were going to be doing, it is believed in some quarters that Vladimir Putin purposely waited till after the midterm elections were over in the United States to do this because he didn't want to give people in this country the impression that Joe Biden's strategy in Ukraine was working and that Joe Biden was helping the people of Ukraine win. They didn't announce this withdrawal till after the midterm elections. But this is big. This is um a big loss for Putin. This war has been going on for those of you who've lost count for eight and a half months. Eight and a half months. And um President Zelensky is calling this a historic day. A people of Ukraine are celebrating. It ain't over yet. But this is um, this is no small thing that has happened. So another thing, if you needed one more thing to celebrate, you know, I during the tense times when we were campaigning and postcarding and phone banking and all that, you know, as the weekend came around, I would tell you to make sure you found some activity, something to do that brought you joy. This weekend. You've done the work. We've had such a stunning result. However the final tally goes, it was not a red tsunami. It wasn't a red wave. It wasn't even really a red puddle, was it? No, it was not. And that's because of us and the work we did and how we talked to our friends and neighbors and colleagues. And we made people understand how important this was. Young people, Gen Z, came out in numbers like never before, by the hundreds of thousands, they came out to fight for their rights and their country. Most of the time, you know, we're not like the the alt-right Republicans. We're not angry all the time. So we don't go to the polls because we're mad and want to air our grievances. We tend to be the kind to sit back and just assume everything's going to go okay, but when we see it isn't? People forget that we are still perfectly capable of acting if we see things going in a bad direction. We saw it. We came out. We're going to continue to be this active. We're going to help Raphael Warnock in Georgia, and we are going to continue to fight the good fight. So this weekend, pat yourself on the back, put your feet up, do something that's fun. Go out and Buy a frozen turkey for Thanksgiving. Do something that brings you joy. You've earned it. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I'm going to see you um, Monday. Monday, wow. Have a great weekend. Good night.